0: Good morning. Pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our series. And, you know, it can be an, a, an awkward thing and a very painful experience to have to try to defend yourself. Sometimes when you try to defend yourself, you end up causing more questions to arise than when you began, and as we think about our culture today, and we look on on all the news stations and and, and everywhere we go, workplaces, schools, churches, even the the SBC which was held this last week, there's these accusations made. Due process no longer matters. Truth. No longer matters. There's just accusations made. And the goal of it is win the public. And if they agree with you, well, you're right. And if they don't, well, they're wrong. And that is exactly where Paul finds himself today. And he's writing this letter these accusations have been made against him. In Acts 17, we we get this picture of him. In verses four, as as him and uh, Paul or Paul Silas and Timothy, they've they've left Philippi. They go to Thessalonica, and they're there for for three weeks preaching in the synagogue. And in and in verse four, it says. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then in verse five it says, But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. To the crowd, and so what happens is these missionaries, in the midst of this this great persecution, they have to flee. They have to get out of there so this this new church can somehow have some breathing room, so can somehow survive all the accusations. But the accusations didn't stop. They kept coming even after they left, and. It seems by the way that Paul is addressing them that the accusations are something like Paul has left you because he's a coward. He doesn't, he's abandoned you because he he really doesn't love you. He really doesn't care about you, so he left. And that couldn't have been farther from the truth. So Paul writes this letter. And in, in chapter two, verses one through 16, he's defending his, his ministry as he was with them. He says, I was a father to you. I was like a nursing mother. I taught the word clearly to you. And then this section, 217 through really 313, he's defending his time with him or he's de- or he's defending his absence from them. So the first part he's de- defending his time with them. This part he's defending his his absence. And when he does this, we we really get just a picture of his heart. As Andy so rightly said, we get a picture of of, uh, of how a pastor should love the flock that God has given him. We we get a picture of, of how the members should should love their pastors. We get a picture of how Christians should deal with affliction. And so the main point I, I want us to consider today is God's people show genuine affection even in the midst of genuine affliction. And we're going to look at two main headings under that main point. And the first one is, Spiritual warfare hinders for a time, but always reveals the heart. Look at verse 17 through 20 again. It says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And this first part I want us to look at is this, this genuine affliction he's, he's facing here. He says, we're torn away. And this, this word torn away in the Greek, it's, it's the word that we use for orphan today. So as Paul, he's mixing metaphors here and he's mixing family metaphors as he says, I was your father. I was your, like a nursing mother. And now he's saying, I'm like an orphan who's been ripped away from you. I didn't leave voluntarily. I was torn away. And he says, not only that, I was, I was hindered by Satan. Now, pastors and commentators debate on what does he mean by hindered by Satan. Because in Acts 16, right before this chapter, he talks about being hindered by the Holy Spirit. And now in Acts 17, he's speaking about being hindered by Satan. How does he know what, what's going on? What's the difference between the two? And like I said, there's, there's a great debate on this. Some think it's continuing Jewish opposition. Others think that this is the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, where it says, he sent a messenger of Satan to me. And still others believe that it's some kind of sin. He's in Corinth now. He, they, they think it, it could be some kind of sin, just just keeping all of his intention while he's in Corinth. But I like John Stott's uh, reply the best. And he says, Since we lack this information, it is better for us to confess our ignorance than express an unwarranted confidence. We don't really know why or how Satan hindered them. He doesn't tell us in the text. What we do know is Satan is real. And and people will either take one or two uh, approaches when considering Satan attacking Christians. They'll either they'll either fall in one side of a ditch where they think he's not really real, that he doesn't really tempt Christians. But the Bible clearly explains all over Scripture, even in in chapter three, he he is the tempter. He tempts Christians. Ephesians 2 talks about how he's the the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how he's the little G God who blinds the minds of unbelievers. So as we share the gospel with them, their eyes are covered. They cannot see the gospel clearly. Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You're adversary the devil he he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour he's real we don't want to underestimate him but we also don't want to fall into the other side of the ditch where we say there's a devil behind every tree he is a real adversary he is not an all-powerful adversary he's not a everywhere present Adversary, but he is real and and here he is stopping Paul or hindering Paul from going back to this church. That word hindered is a, a warfare imagery it's a it's a war term it's It means the Roman army they would go out as the enemy was coming in to attack, and they would break up the road so they couldn't make any more progress. And that's what Satan's done here. He's tore up the road where Paul cannot come back into Thessalonica. Paul and Satan right now, they're, they're battling over the souls of the people of this church. And Satan still does this today. You all are physically here. He has not stopped y'all from physically being here this morning. But he will attack your marriage. He will attack your loved ones. He will cause there to be a, a break in relationship between siblings or child or coworkers or anything to get you from being able to share the gospel. And some of you this morning, you're not even able to hear me. I mean, audibly, yes, you, you hear me, but you can't hear me. Because the cares of this world are, are so distracting you that even when I'm preaching this morning, you're not able to understand it. Your mind is somewhere else. Don't think Satan isn't actively working to hinder this morning. And the two places I see him do this most in our world is through busyness and unresolved issues. Too busy to pray. Too busy to read our Bibles. Too too busy to come to church. We're just too busy. And for what purpose? To what end are we busy? Or we have unresolved issues. We're not able to talk to that person we want to talk. We we've been hurt. We've been hurt by the church. We've been hurt by someone else. We've been hurt by a loved one. We've lost a loved one. We just have some kind of unresolved issue that we haven't dealt with. And it's easy just to sink down into self-pity and just to to begin to examine ourselves. And, And Paul right here, he has the right to do that, it seems. But in the midst of this genuine affliction... Paul shows genuine affection. Read verse 19 and 20 again. It says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, each chapter at the end of 1 Thessalonians, it mentions something about the coming of Jesus. And, and each time it does, it's trying to teach us something that we should know and learn about the coming and, and longing for the coming of our Lord Jesus. And in this section, I think what it's trying to teach us is how, the, how we sh- as a church should love one another as we wait for the Lord to come. Again, even in the midst of affliction. But Paul says, he says, for you are our glory and our joy and joy. And, and remember who he's talking to. Look back in th- verse 17. He says, brothers. And it also could say brothers and sisters. He's saying, you church are my glory and joy. And, and at first that, that statement kind of struck me strangely. That, that seemed strange to me. Because imagine this picture: when when Jesus returns, it would make sense if Paul wrote, "Jesus, you are my joy and my crown and my glory." That makes sense, right? But he doesn't write that. He says, "You," speaking of the church. So is Paul? Is he saying we need to worship man rather than Jesus, or? Or or what is he saying in this section that he he says, you are my joy. And I think what he's doing is he's taking this long view of uh, uh, approach to his affliction. If you remember in Romans chapter eight, uh, verse 18, Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he, he's looking at his real affliction And he's saying it just doesn't matter when Christ returns. And and follow his logic even even in chapter 2. As he look at verse 2. Kind of towards the end of verse 2 at that. He says we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of of conflict. Of much conflict. Look at kind of uh, verse 8. Skip down. He says, we not only shared the gospel, but we we shared our own selves. Now, skip to verse 12. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, skip to verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So what Paul is saying is as we face real conflict, real afflictions in the here and now, it just doesn't mean anything because God sent his son. God sent his son to live the perfect life, to lay down that life. And he ascended to heaven and then he sent his Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins. And any that that believe in him and repent and, and turn and trust in him, they now become brothers and sisters in Christ. And when Paul gets to heaven... What he's not going to glory in is the individual men and women. He's going to glory in the grace of God that was shown on these men and women who were then transformed. And for all eternity, he's going to spend with them. That is what he's focused on. So as he he's not focused on man here, he's focused on God's grace in Christ's return. And as he does, he can't help but to focus on man and to love him Truly how we're called to love one another. So Paul, he says, he as he's doing this, he's saying, you are a joy and crown. And so I ask you this morning, what is your hope or joy or crown or boasting when Christ returns? How would you respond to that if I asked that? I think if we were real honest, if we if we just took things we spent our time and our money cuz that really shows our heart, doesn't it? If we really just just took the things that we did with our time and our money, what would our hope and joy be? And I think when we examine ourselves too often, it would be temporal things that are fading. Things that really have no eternal value whatsoever good things not necessarily bad things we tend to take good gifts of god and make them idols don't we like family it's a good gift of god but we can make them an idol work friends and these things, although they're good, they just never can be our hope and our joy. They they never can be the thing that we worship. They were never meant to be. But what if we did learn how to, to view Christ and to view our family and our work in light of His return? How would that change the good gifts that God has given us? The family work... Uh, job health all these things friends how would that change that how would that change the bad things the cancer diagnosis the loss of a loved one the not getting that job it wouldn't change or minimize the reality of the affliction would it but it would change the context in which we viewed the affliction It would put it in a perspective, a long-term, eternal perspective, instead of a short-term, temporal perspective. So, spiritual warfare hinders for a time, and it always reveals the heart. And Paul's heart is showing us he's filled with affection. He's filled with affection. So, point number two. Spiritual care faces hindrances at times, but always relies on God. Paul, explaining why he hasn't returned to Thessalonica, and he's showing his genuine affection, and then he, he moves that genuine affection, produces an action in which he sends Timothy to them. And, and, and what it shows us in this is really three elements of pastoral ministry. The first element I want us to look at is the the weight of pastoral ministry. Look at verse one and verse five. He says, therefore, verse one, chapter three, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and then skip down to verse five. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, hear his words in there, I could bear it no longer I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter attempted you and our labor would be in vain. There's a weight to pastoral ministry. And I thought Grant did a great job of illustrating this last week. And if you remember, he was talking about the birth of his son. And when Jack was born... He said there was just this, he, Every when Jack was born and, and Emily was okay and Jack was okay, he was really hungry and he left the hospital to go get something to eat. And he began just to sob. He said he was just so overwhelmed and, and sobbing uncontrollably. He even said he tried to order his meal while he was sobbing, which would have been a pretty funny sight. I mean, just... Dishonestly, but he was sobbing, doing this. And, and what was happening? He was not sobbing that 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 his child was born. He was not sobbing sobbing that anything was bad that was happening. He was just sobbing because he was just God had given him this gift. And he, he understood it was, it was his job as the father of the household to be the, the shepherd to lead this child, to teach him about the gospel. And there was a right weightiness on him. Pastors in a similar way, the church is a household of God. And the Holy Spirit, Acts twenty twenty eight tells us, has set apart men and given them the church. And he appoints them to the care of a local church. And so one day the pastor will stand before, one day I will stand before Jesus and I will say, here they are, Lord. I shared the gospel and I pray. I can say I, I did it. It's best to my ability, as clear as I could and as boldly as I could, that I was faithful to share the gospel with you. And I'll say, one day, here Christ, here they are. And there should be a rightful weightiness on all pastors. In too many there are not. Just like too many parents do not feel the weightiness of being a parent. So Paul, he uses that. I can bear it no longer. I have to know what's going on. You ever had a family member have something traumatic happen? A car wreck, uh. a heart attack, or cancer, or anything like that? And 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 you're waiting just to know what happened. You're waiting to know the results. What? And so it just seems like time just... Just becomes really long, doesn't it? As you wait, hours seem like days, days seem like months, months seem like years. You just want to know what's going on. Paul's feeling that same thing. I just can't bear it. I gotta know. He shows this heart in in other places as well. When he wrote to the church in Corinthian, in Corinth. He wrote, Imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received it at the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Think he's been through some afflictions? You think so? And he adds this to it. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. There summarizes the heart of a pastor. Paul feels his weight in how you can pray for us, church. Church. Is this weight that God has put on us for His glory and our eternal good. That we will carry it well. That we will carry it without disqualifying ourselves. And that we might run the race that God has set before us. So there's a weight to pastoral ministry. And next element that we see... He, he describes the purpose of pastoral ministry. He feels this weight. And so he decides it would be better that he's left alone. He sends Timothy. And he sends Timothy with a particular me, uh, mission. He's to exhort. He's to. Uh, where is it on? There it is. To establish, exhort, and prepare them for affliction. That is the purpose of Pastoral ministry. Look at it and you'll see it in the text. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it come to pass. And just as you know... So, as everybody's been telling you, this church is new. Paul's only there three weeks. He's got to get out of there. There's no one left behind to establish and exhort them. So, Paul thinks it's best that he's left alone in a pagan nation. And where there's all kinds of dangers around him, he sends Timothy to them so that he can equip them and prepare them more for these afflictions. And the best way to establish and exhort people and exhort the church and prepare them for affliction is to describe to them the necessity of it in our Christian life. We don't like afflictions, but it is necessary. Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians, he wrote to them again in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You ever face something that you just felt like you've received a sentence of death? He goes on to say, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Many Christians believe a pastor's job is to be a spiritual cheerleader that only preaches uplifting sermons and cheers them on week by week. And the pastor's job is really as a spiritual coach who does cheer them on, but also teaches them and shows them how to be prepared for affliction. That way, when they go through it, which they will, they're able to apply their faith to the affliction and not be overcome by it. And then that's what's going on. That's why Andrew felt the need to preach lamentations last year. He was preparing us and himself for the year that we were going to face. So we'd learn how to lament, that we would learn how to cry out for God in faith. And we had a lot of lamenting to do, didn't we? But that's why we need the whole counsel of God's word preached so we can be prepared for these things. And it's necessary that we go through these things so that we'll turn to God and focus on Him. Church, we need to, to grow in our doctrine of suffering. There's so many people preaching today that God, or Jesus is the answer to all your problems. It's funny, Jesus preached, no, I'm going to give you some more. That's why he says, take up your cross. That's why he says, in this world, you will face tribulations, but don't worry, I've overcome it. We're going to face trouble. But we have a Savior who's overcome that for us. And so if you're facing affliction this morning. Hear me clearly be encouraged. God is doing a work through you. For his glory. And your good. That does not make it easy. But it does make it good. And most good things are not easy childbirth so i've heard is not easy i've watched it a couple times it didn't look good so i it looked hard and i was i was encouraging raising children is not easy it is good isn't it And so the the purpose of pastoral ministry is to to strengthen, to encourage, and to prepare for affliction. And lastly, I want us to look at the hope of pastoral ministry. It's the same hope that we all have. And and Paul says in in, in verse 3, he says, That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this and notice that word destined it, it's a word we that is appointed and what he's saying is as as Satan as he tempts as he afflicts God appoints it's referring to God's sovereignty his provi- his mysterious providential care in our lives it doesn't make sense sometimes But as Satan, he's going to come and hinder. As God, he's going to appoint. As Satan, he's going to bring about temptation. God's going to bring about testing. And 1 Peter, I think, explains this to us, why he does this. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. I don't know what you're going through in life right now. Maybe you're like Paul. Maybe maybe the, the afflictions in this world, they're just overtaking you. Every turn you seem to make, you just you just can't make it. And if that's not where you're at right now, you've been there at some time, or you're going to be there soon. Scripture gives three groups of people. There's two responses, but there's three groups of people of how you will respond. You will either curse God. You will be indifferent, which will still show your hard heart. Or you will yield to his mysterious care in your life. There's a popular story. You might have heard it. Uh, There was a battleship and he was... Going out in the fog and he couldn't see anywhere. And then all of a sudden he seen a light up ahead and he said, uh, headed for collision, turn 15 degrees north. And the, he heard a response, headed for collision, turn 15 degrees south. He said, no, 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 headed for collision, turn 15 degrees north. And He said, no, headed for collision, turn 15 degrees south. Captain got a little aggravated. He said, I am the captain of a battleship. Turn 15 degrees north. And he heard, I am a lighthouse. You turn. So often we we look at the light, which is God's sovereign providence at work in our lives. And we look at the light and we say, light, you turn while we think we're a battleship. And God is saying, no, you must yield to me. Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How do you think he learned that? How do you think he learned that? It was through all of those trials that that God had had taken him through. And and my prayer for us this morning, that we would be like the church In Thessalonica, that we would be like the Apostle Paul and that we would learn to lean in on God's sovereign hand and that it would be a lighthouse for us to return to and to guide us and to submit to. As Satan hinders, God has appointed. And I pray that we would not be like this world that's been moved by affliction. Affliction. That word moved in chapter 3, verse 3. It's a it's an interesting word. It, it's a word used to describe a dog wagging its tail. And I have a puppy right now. He's about one now. And when, when you walk in to see him, he's wagging his tail so fast. He's running into everything. He's running into the person who comes and sees him. He's running into the couch. He's He's falling all over himself. And that's the word Paul uses to describe being moved by afflictions people so controlled by their emotions that they're falling everywhere they can no longer control themselves i think this past year has been evident that the world has been moved by affliction and sadly many in the church have followed our doctrine of the church and our doctrine of church membership has been exposed And Paul is calling us back. He's, he's questioning us. He's saying, I pray that you haven't been moved. But spiritual warfare hinders for a time. It always reveals the heart. And what is your heart revealing this morning? You'll either be in three groups. You will curse God. You will be indifferent to Him. You cannot be hurt or moved because you're dead in this life or you'll submit to them. Let's pray. Lord, cause us to see your mysterious, providential care in our lives and yield to it Father, we know that that's not going to be easy, so we also pray that You would give us the strength to do that. Cause our affection to grow for You and for one another. May we love Your church in which You sent Your Son to die for. May we love our pastors well. May we love Our sheep will, Lord, just calls us in every way to be a picture to this broken nation. That we might worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.